Hey, hey, everybody. This is Nikki Bruno with the Epic Comeback Podcast, where warrior women and men who've gone through absolute caca give you advice on getting to the other side of yours. Today is super, super special, and I'm very honored to have with me Eric Auday. Eric, thank you so much for being here. No, thank you for having me on. I'm so excited. So this episode takes, I think, a little bit of explanation. So Eric, as I mentioned, you are the second man to be on the Epic Comeback podcast, which is super, super exciting. And I want to tell all of you listeners, the way that Eric and I met was a week ago, Sunday, I was at, Eric and I were at um, an after party for the Oscars called the City Gala. And I was interviewing folks along the red carpet for this, you know, for my podcast. And Eric came along and I started asking Eric my questions, which basically were, what do you, in your opinion, does it take to get to the other side of a life shattering situation? So Eric is answering my question and, you know, and he's saying, he's saying like things that are really, that are really deep, you know, that are really connecting with me. And then he starts to get a little bit into his story. And I'm not going to tell you his story because he's going to tell it to you. But um, it turns out that Eric Auday has such an incredible life story that a documentary has been made about his life story. It's called Three Years in Pakistan, The Eric Auday Story. And it's all about Eric and what he went through and how he staged an epic, more than epic, like enormous ultimate epic comeback in his own life and I was a little embarrassed that I, I was a little embarrassed that I didn't already know about this right because here I am interviewing him on on an Oscars red carpet um, but anyway in addition to having had a documentary made about his life Eric is an actor he's a stuntman he's a producer he's a professional poker player and just a fascinating guy so um Let's get right into it, Eric. I'm going to give you the mic for a bit and just ask you to introduce yourself a little more if there's anything I left out and let us know like where you're from and um, you know how you keep yourself busy during the day. Like what are you up to? Uh, what am I up to? Hi. Uh, no, you answered. You, you hit it mostly on the nail. I'm uh, uh, from LA, born and raised. Uh, I've lived a, a bit of a life. I have a uh, Technically, I have two documentaries about my life, but the one that I, I always refer everyone to is Three Years in Pakistan, which you can get on almost any streaming platform. Uh, I tell everyone it's free on Amazon Prime. Um, when I was a kid, I was run over by a school bus. I was told I'd never walk again. I've had over 50 surgeries. I'm the first person on earth to have their urethra severed and reconnected. Um, and even though I was told I'd never walk again, uh, uh, doctors are wrong. Doctors tell you you can't do something. It, it just, they're usually wrong. Um, I hold a California record for the most tackles by defensive end. It's a 24 year record now. So that's, um, kind of awesome. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it's uh I, w I figured, you know, uh, at an early age because of the bus accident, I, I was so used to pain because pain was basically a part of my everyday life i couldn't go to sleep without being in pain i couldn't go to the bathroom without being in pain um that i figured you know what i might as well uh be a stuntman and that's what i became i became a stuntman um pain is you know my friend and i to this day i get paid to get hurt um for sure but but when you're uh, when you're an act in the entertainment industry as an actor or stuntman it's never full-time work i mean I, I wish it was even for a listers it's not full-time work but 
when you're a sandbag, as I am, someone who just fills in and gets hurt by the actors or whatnot, it's especially not full-time work. And although I work more than most, um, I, back in the day, one of the jobs I had that um, I had to fill up my time was I was a personal trainer at, the, at a gym in Burbank. One of my clients uh, was a very, would end up becoming a very good friend of mine, and his name at the time was Rasmic Manassian. But it turned out, um, well, he had told me his name was Ray Gazarian, but it turned out to be a lie. His real name was Rasmic Manassian, and uh, he hired me to travel around to different countries and importing expensive leather goods to beat the import tax. I was getting a free trip. I was getting a few bucks spending money to me, to a kid, to a teenager. It was a dream come true, uh, the right place, right time kind of uh, experience. And I would be the one to find out the hardest way after 9-11 what it was we were all being used to do. And that was unknowingly smuggled narcotics. I was arrested with 3.6 kg of opium uh, at Islamabad Airport in Pakistan just a few months after 9-11. Um, I was tortured for information I didn't have. Uh, I was, uh, I was thrown into the biggest prison in all of Pakistan. I was the only American there. People tried to kill me constantly. There was a, a 50, uh, well, there was a 5,000 rupee bounty put on my head. And at the time that was worth roughly $87. People tried to collect it. I was stabbed. I was beaten. I was uh, put in isolation for my, uh, for my safety. Uh, they had me on death row for just under nine months. Mm -hmm. um, or no, sir, for nine and a half months because uh, everyone in the prison kept trying to kill me and they figured that was where I was going to end up anyways because what I was arrested with was considered a 9C and that's uh, punishable by death. Like if you get caught with one kg of any kind of narcotic, you can go to jail. Depends on the mood of the judge. He can give you one year or he can give you death. Wait, um, so I was arrested with... They put, you, they put you on death row for your own safety, basically? Well, yeah, that, they put me on death row for two reasons. Uh, superintendent at the time because people kept trying to kill me i was getting i was stabbed hit by rakes they couldn't keep, put me in the barracks um and so the superintendent at the time figured that i was going to be hung anyway so he might as well just get it get a head start on it so they put me on death row but they it, you know he said it was for my safety but that's where i was going to end up anyways so i yeah. spent the first nine and a half months in prison on death row a new superintendent came into the prison and says why is he on death row he's not convicted yet so they brought me off the death row, but they still couldn't put me in general population. So they put me with the political prisoners um, in two cell. And uh, there I was offered a deal when it did come to my time in court. Like it went to court so many times. Uh, the judge wanted $100,000 for my acquittal. I didn't have that kind of money. Um, then he, you know, he kept negotiating with my lawyer. Finally, the embassy, one of the counselors from the embassy got involved without getting involved. They said, look, we worked out a deal. The judge is going to give you a two-year prison sentence. You're going to—he's uh, going to get paid a thousand dollars. This is—and this is normal in Pakistan. If you're—if you're guilty, you want to go to jail in Pakistan because you pay off the judge, you pay off the prosecutors, you get a small sentence, and you go home. But here was the kicker: they said you have to plead guilty. I go, I'm not pleading guilty for a crime I didn't commit. They go, Eric, what's worth more to you? Your pride or your freedom? Now, I was facing a possible death sentence or life in prison, and I still refused to plead guilty for a crime I didn't commit because at the end of the day, the only thing I had left was my pride. And I wasn't going get, to give these guys that little bit. I had everything taken away from me. I had my freedom taken away from me. I had my, my uh, kindergarten sweetheart, who was my fiance at the time, taken away from me. Oh, um, and I wasn't going to let them take 
this one thing away from me. I knew for a fact that down the line, had I pled guilty that day, I probably probably wouldn't be here today because I would have ended up killing myself from shame. I wouldn't have been able to look at myself in the mirror years later. So I refused to plead guilty for a crime I didn't commit. And I was full well expecting death or life in prison. And I was given seven years. And seven years, I was like, you know what? I can handle seven years. I was happy. I was absolutely happy. But I, I didn't take it lying down. I became a lawyer while I was in prison. I worked on my case. And I still got myself uh, out in, uh, in just under three years by being a lawyer and working on all my own appeals. And it's, uh, that's a very crackerjack version of what, what happened right. to me. But it's right. I mean, you, you, you can learn about most of it on, on my documentary. I mean, even though I just gave you the nice bulletin points. Yeah, sure. So, so ladies and gentlemen, that's the summary that like, that's the, the executive summary. This is a guy who got run over by a bus as a kid. I have a question about that. Just to rewind, to rewind to the bus incident. When you were run over by a bus as a kid and the doctors told you that you were never going to walk again, did you how what was your response to that did you believe them or even or was it that even as a kid you were like no way no and like, I, I didn't believe them at all like well first off they said i wasn't going to make it through the night they didn't tell me they told my mom this i wasn't supposed to make it through the night i wasn't supposed to make it through the week and then as time went on then it started to become like oh okay well it's because i was so young and still growing i think that's the only reason why i survived everything uh, i had a catheter um yeah, what they were doing was experimental surgery on me because like I said, I was the first person to have their urethra seven reconnected. So what took a ridiculous amount of surgeries probably takes a lot less, but I'm in doctor's histories, history books from what I had to experience. Yeah. Unfortunately, when I was a kid, they kept pumping me full of uh, painkillers and my body became so used to them that I, be that I became a drug addict as a kid um, at eight years old because uh, the, the painkillers, I was, I was dependent on them. So when they yeah. took me off of them, I was in so much pain. They, they couldn't give me any more painkillers whatsoever. And it was the, um, it was a transition to having to uh, just deal with it and get through it. That they realized, uh, that I realized I never, I never could take anything. Like to this day, I don't take any kind of uh, Tylenol or ibuprofen. I stay away from everything um, because of the experience that I had when I was a kid. Um, the only thing that's great about everything that happened to me is that it, it you know, like prison was easy. People are like, is prison the worst thing that ever happened to you? It wasn't even close. The, you know, the two years in a wheelchair and in bed and waking up, you know, feeling like someone was just wringing the sides of my kidneys. And, they, and I felt like I was passing stones and nails and, and, and broken glass in my urinary tract. It was, you know, going through that as a kid and not, and not being prepared for that. But the older I got, I learned to tolerate. I learned to scream in silence. And I, um, when something bad would happen, I would just be like, well, it's not the worst thing that's ever happened to me. Even in prison, I was like, it's not the worst thing that's ever happened to me. Sure. And as time went on and you, um, I'm kind of skipping ahead here to high school and you're a football player and you're setting records. Are you in pain every day? I mean, have you basically yeah. been in pain every day since you got over, run over by a bus? Yeah, every day I'm in pain. Um, um, I have these moments where like, I'll be like, I'll be like real silent and I'll sort of lean because I'm having like a uh, spasm attack on the side of my kidneys. Um, some days are worse than others, but you know, it's, you know, it, I, when I was, I think I was like, I was nine years old or I was about to turn nine years old and my mom's boyfriend would come into the room when I'd have these episodes and it'd be in the middle of the night, like one in the morning, two in the morning. 
and I'd be screaming bloody murder and he'd come in the room I'd see him sleeping and he would sit down and play Nintendo Zelda next to my bed until it went until it passed and he was like trying to stay awake as he was just staying with me and I felt terrible for being an inconvenience to the you know to him and and, and that's what it became I was just an inconvenience mm-hmm. and when I realized no one can help me is when I started to realize I uh, I just needed to to learn to take it damn so um, this this doesn't have anything to do with your pain, but uh, uh, you were, it's about the stunt industry. You were saying that in the stunt, uh, like working as a stunt person, isn't full time work. It, why isn't it full time work? Is it because there are there's there are so many people in the industry? Like why couldn't well, it? Well, even that too. But think about it. Once a, a movie's made, it's done. You got to get another movie. You got to get another show. You know. Right. Eventually, every job you start is going to end. Yeah. You know, and there's not that many stunt people in the industry. It's very um, competitive, though, mm-hmm. uh, and it's it's very cliquish. You know, you'll see the same names in the stunt industry. Like I do very well. I got a lot of you know a lot a lot of everyone in the stunt industry knows me. Um, whether or not they like me is a different question. But I mean, I, I work a lot. But there's just other people who have um, were born into it. Their parents were in it, so it was a little bit easier for them, or they match a certain actor. Uh, the the roles I use I tend to get are the ones where I have to um, audition for them and then I, I play a character that does all their own stunts. Uh, I do a lot of stunt coordinating. Um, but back in the day when I was first starting out, there was you know I, I was working, but it wasn't full time in, in any way, shape, or form. And today I don't work full time. I work more than most. I don't work full time. It'd yeah. be nice. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, no, I mean that's just that's something I don't know a thing about the stunt industry. So that's that's really fascinating to me. But getting back to the, the multiple epic comebacks that you've made in your life, getting over being run over a bus, getting over being in Pakistan for three years for a crime, in prison for a crime that you didn't commit. Um, what? You're, you're imprisoned in Pakistan and people are trying to kill you. What is it that's getting you through day to day? I, I wanted to get back to my fiance. I wanted to, the girl that I've loved since I was five years old, I wanted to uh, get back to her. Um, she was everything to me, you know, since I was a kid, I wanted to be with this one girl. Her name was Missy. And for some reason, it just, it, it, we just weren't meant to be together. And it was Pakistan. That was the reason we couldn't be together. She tried to wait. She tried to wait. She sent me letters as much as she could, but, um, four months before I got out, she met someone. And the second I got out, I had nothing to my name, nothing to offer her. And the guy she met, he upped his game, maxed out all his credit cards. And while I was getting my life back together, he was like just <laughs> laid it on pretty thick. And he won, and he won her over. Um, so, yeah, I lost the love of my life. That was I always say, if anything was, was worse than Pakistan, it was losing her. So this is kind of like, I can't even ask you my normal interview questions because it's almost like they don't apply. Like the question that I'm about to ask is like, so the people I interview on this podcast are people who, you know, who I call warriors, like people who have come through backbreakingly, life-shatteringly difficult situations and have come out on the other side. Um, and the question that I have is, what's the best thing about being there? What's the best thing or has been the best thing for you about being on the other side? And, and I'll, ask the, I'll ask the question again in a minute, but when you're telling me that like, you spent three years in Pakistan and then you get, and then you get out of jail. You've become an attorney. 
And you've been able to free yourself through your own work as an attorney. And then you get out. And I would, you know, one, one would think that it would have been this incredible homecoming, gotten to the other side, you've gotten through this crisis, and you lose the love of your life. So I'm wondering, I'm just wondering, like, was there, a, was there any feeling like of triumph or joy or, or a sense of having come through something? Like, were there positive? There's always positives in life, you know. I, unfortunately, I was, you know, if anyone was built for prison, it was me. Um, I, I, my, ha my, my life growing up was not a happy life. I'm, I'm the youngest of six boys. The bus accident was a terrible situation, but, um, you know, I had a really hard upbringing. My mom and my dad fought. They went to court all the time. My dad flew to the other side of the country to get away from my mother. My mother used me as a weapon against my father in court for more child support. Although I was the youngest of six boys, um, none of my brothers lived with my mother because she was just, you know, she was, she was difficult. And um, I had no choice because I was always going to surgeries and everything. Um, I had, to, uh, I had to, to, to hustle my whole life to make ends meet. Like, just to get, I paid for my own braces. Uh, I paid for all my own headshots. I paid for all my own lunch. I worked at the, the, the cafeterias in school, in, in junior high and high school, just so I could have a lunch every day. Um, my mother didn't help or take care of me in any way, shape, or form. She was a, you know, she just, yeah. But how terrible my mother was is why I was so resourceful, because I had no choice. I would pay for everything. I paid for my own braces. Um, and I, I just knew that uh, I used to live, we used to live up in the Antelope Valley. The Antelope Valley is about 60 miles north of, of LA and it sucks up there. It's, it's a place you go if you, when you just give up on all your hopes and dreams. And it was so terrible up in the Antelope Valley that it, it, ins, it inspired me to study harder. I mean, I was the flashcard king. I would just, I would get A's, straight A's in high school and I knew I wanted to get out of there so bad. I wanted to be a stuntman. I wanted to be an actor. I wanted to get back to um, Northridge because that's where Missy was. Missy was my inspiration for everything. She was yeah. um, my inspiration to be funny, to to be successful, to work out harder in the gym, to study longer at night. And it was because I, I always thought she won't want someone that's stupid. She won't want someone that looks dumb. She won't want someone that's not interesting. So I wanted to be an entertainer to basically impress a girl. And I, everything I did, I did for a girl that I almost had. And when I went to jail, she was my, you know, she was my fiance. And when I got out of jail, my entire life of working towards one goal was taken away from me. And that was Missy. And when I got out, we would think like there was this big homecoming and everything, but there wasn't. When I got out, only two people helped me. My football coach, he gave me a car to borrow. And a friend of mine, Simo, who was a, a, a bodybuilding buddy of mine who gave me a hundred bucks when he took me to lunch one day. Um, and I was able to get back on my feet from that. I had to become a bouncer in, in Hollywood to make ends meet. If I didn't get in four fights a night, it was a slow night. I had to work the roughest nights just to make a, a few bucks to, and trying to get back into acting and stunts was not easy because I was considered over the hill. Uh, when I was a teenager, I was always playing the, the jock roles, the, the football player roles, the bully roles. Yeah. But when I was uh, 24, about to turn 25, all of a sudden I'm too old reality tv was everywhere so um the industry had changed and it took me until not giving up and trying to make connections basically essentially starting all over again uh that i was able to start um landing stunt and acting roles like when i was around 
30 years old and then it became more consistent because I stuck in there. I didn't give up. Um, and I was able to build, I was able to use what I learned in prison, which was uh, poker. I learned how to play poker on death row in Pakistan. Really? And, yeah. And it was my, it was my ability to, to, to do what I did in prison out in the real world that really helped me get back on my feet. So in a sense, jail was the best thing that ever happened for me because it allowed me to know that even if everything was taken away from me, I could start over again from scratch. No matter how bad it gets, it could absolutely always be worse. And that mindset has stayed with me. I mean, if I don't, if, if something bad goes my way, I just laugh and say, it's not the worst thing that ever happened to me. And I know I can get through it. Sure. Sure. Um, so your fellow, so your fellow prisoners taught you how to play poker in Pakistan? I, yeah. Yeah. We would play on death row for five rupees, 10 rupees. And then we would usually use that money to buy like yogurt or a chicken. If more people bought in, then we, we would uh, buy better food. Um, but yeah, that's what we did to yeah. kill the time. You, we used, would do. you used your poker money on yogurt. Mm. Wow. And when you decided to become an attorney, I mean, like, what did that take? Did you just, did you, did you say, um, you know, to the superintendent or to, you know, or to the, to the prison employees, like, I want to go to the library and become a lawyer? Oh, now there, there's, well, there's no library in that jail. Um, the bottom line, if you can read and write, you can be an attorney in Pakistan. It's, it's not that difficult. It's a lot of bribes, a lot. You have to, outside teachers would have to come to the prison um, and give you, you would take correspondence courses to the AIOU, the Alama Iqbal Open University. And now, the funny thing is there's me and three other guys taking these courses and all these guys were cheating off of me to do this. Now this was all in our due. Um, and what we would do is when the teacher would come in, we would just give him like a thousand rupees, which is a th like less than 20 bucks. Yeah. Um, and then we give him like some sweet dishes and everything. He'd go outside and we would just start copying out of the books. So the yeah. second get, so getting your degree in Pakistan is not hard at all. But once you have your degree, uh, they have to take all your um, paperwork seriously when they pass it through the courts. But in Pakistan, everything's bribes. Um, as long as you understand that's how you, you have to just grease the palms of the right people. As long as you understand that's the way things work, you can do it. You can get anything you want. You can get anything you want in that jail. Um, I mean, you can get weapons in that jail. Some guy smuggled a gun in the damn jail while I was there. Um, you can get women in that jail. You can get drugs. You can get alcohol. You can get anything that you literally want in that prison as long as you grease the right palms. Sure. Sure. So looking back on, um, so you were 24, is that right, when you got out of jail? Yes, I was about to turn 25. I went in at 21, and I was about to turn 25 when I got out. Okay, and and that was how many years ago? Uh, it was uh, February, February fourth, no, February fifteenth, the day after Valentine's Day, when I was arrested. So uh, that's eighteen years ago, or uh, nineteen years ago. Wow, eighteen, yeah. eighteen years ago. Almost to the day, because it's February seventeenth right now that we're recording. Yeah. So when you when you look back on on the experience of. Um, well, really kind of on the experience of your life, it does, I mean, I remember asking you, you know, on the red carpet a week ago, what does it take to stage an epic comeback? When you hear that phrase, what does that mean to you? And, and do you relate to that phrase? Like, do you, do you think of yourself as having done that? As an, an epic comeback? I mean, yeah. I don't know, the word epic, I mean, I wouldn't use the word epic. <laughs> I don't think okay. I'd ever use the word epic. 
Um, right. No. All, yeah. All it takes is just a good mindset. All it takes is just the will to not give up. I tell everyone, if I can do it, you can do it. There's no magic to it. It's simply just not giving up. It's just moving forward. You know, you get knocked down six times, you get up seven. It's that simple. It really is. Everyone's always so focused in their own thoughts that, and they're, and they're always worried about what they don't have or how they're going to make ends meet. And most of the time people just spend the majority of their, their day worrying about things that actually don't even matter in the long run. We just, you know, just live in the moment and enjoy what's around us. I, you know, before I went to jail, I never appreciated anything. I, you know, I never had uh, the role I wanted. I never had any, you know, the car I wanted to drive. I never, you know, had enough money in my eyes. Nothing was ever good enough. But when I came back and I was broke and all I had was the clothes on my back, I felt richer than anything. You know, I had my feet, my legs, my, my health. I could walk outside and I could uh, go meet people. I can go feel the sun on my face. I can drink water, ice. Ice is, is gold. I tell everyone, ice is absolutely gold. I can go pet a dog. You know, you can go on the beach and you can just, that's all completely priceless. No one understands how great their life is until everything's taken away. You know? You could be a jillionaire and still not be happy. If, if money and success dictated people's happiness, then what was Robin Williams' excuse or Anthony Bourdain's? Mm-hmm. You know, I'd rather be broke and happy than rich and miserable. Yeah. And, and I've, learned to, I've learned to just take it. You know, the blows will come and you're going to get hit again and again, but as long as you keep moving forward, you're going to be okay. So what I'm hearing from you is... Um, because my next question was about what advice would you give? What, what advice would you give to people who are going through something that, um, that, that is life shattering, you know, and they're terrified or they're desperate and they, they don't know how to get to the other side and they don't know if they will get to the other side. What I'm hearing from you is have the right mindset and don't give up. And if you get knocked down six times, you know, get up seven. And, and to take it. Is there anything in addition to that that you would offer to our listeners who are going through absolute hell right now? Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's people who are dealing with things that there's no way to get through. You know, someone who's, who's facing a, a life-ending cancer. There's people who, um, you know, who are, there's, you know, everyone deals with things differently. Something that makes you laugh could, could make me cry. And you know, like, like I said, I, I know a lot of people wouldn't have been able to go through what I went through, but I was built for jail. I tell everyone, no matter how bad it gets, it could always be worse. But through every dark day, there is a bright, shiny day after that. All you have to do is stick your chest out, keep your head up, and handle it. So what was a bright day for you when you were in Pakistan and you were in jail? Uh, like- I had all kinds of bright days in Pakistan. I mean, I, I laughed. People... I would laugh all the time. I, uh, you know, I was smart enough to adjust to the situation. I was strong enough to defend myself. I had people on the outside trying to, you know, help me out any way they could. Um, I had friends in jail. You know, people respected me. I learned the language. Um, I taught other people how to read and write their own languages. Uh, I became a teacher in prison. I, I worked on a garden. And uh, I turned an ugly garden into, or an ugly yard into a beautiful garden that people appreciated leaving their, uh, their cells for. I brought a water well in to my cell block. And even though it was for, you know, to make my life a little easier, everyone absolutely benefited off of it. Um, I got a sadistic asshole guard fired 
and everyone in the prison was beyond appreciative of that. Uh, you know, I, I, I organized soccer matches. I won a boxing tournament in prison. I was the guy you came to when you needed something, a cell phone, a protection, food. I was, I was red from Shawshank Redemption, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've got stories and, 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 and laughter and tales for, 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 for years. And when I look back at, at my experience in jail, I, you know, I sometimes miss it. I had, you know, I had a good time in jail. Mm. Were there, uh, you may have said this already, were there any other Americans or any um, non-Pakistanis that were in jail while you were there? Oh, there were all kinds of non-Pakistanis. Other Americans, no, but people with American visas, yes. There was a Thai woman with an American visa because she was born on an American air base. So she had dual citizenship that was a, um, arrested there. She was there for a couple months. I helped get her out of prison. Um, there was a, another guy that had a, a dual citizenship, but, uh, he was only there for passport violation. Um, most, but most, most, but there was, but there, yeah, India, Afghan, Iran, there was one French dude, a couple Germans, uh, one English guy, Swiss guy, a few Australians, a bunch of Romanians, at one point, we had a Canadian, uh, but only for a little bit, but never a, a full-on American was ever in jail with me. Got it. Got it. So yeah, I mean, it really sounds like a mixture. So this is kind of my last question. One of the things that's forming in my mind is um, I've done a lot of traveling. Um, I've been to about 60 countries, and it's kind of un-American in a way to travel because I, I don't remember the percentage of Americans that actually have a passport, but it's pretty low. And so I find um, after I come back from traveling, like I had one year where I traveled and then a nine month period where I traveled and I'd come back and I wouldn't have anyone to talk to. I wouldn't have anyone to talk to or kind of like, you know, just jam with in conversation about traveling and about being like being abroad and scuba diving and climbing mountains and having adventures. And so it was a little bit isolating. And I'm wondering like these days in your life now, is there anyone that you have um, or maybe like, earlier in the years after you got back from Pakistan, like that you could talk to about this kind of stuff, you know, that you could sort of jam with. I mean, do you, are you connected at all with anyone who you were in that prison with? No. The guys I was, uh, the guys I was the, um, very, the closest with in jail are all on the FBI's most wanted list. They're worth $5 million each. One of them was, um, so I got brought in by the FBI to talk to them and they wanted me to tell them where, if I knew where they're at. I don't know where they're at. So I yeah. couldn't really help them. But I know that they, uh, they killed one of them with a throwing strike. My buddy got killed with a $5 million missile. Honestly, it's kind of the way he would have wanted to go. I want to go with a $5 million missile. I'd be honored. Um, <laughs> just like they wasted so much money. <laughs> You've chosen the weapon um, you'd like to die from. That's just, that's wow. I mean, if you're going to go, you might as well go with, with some money, with a, with a $5 million bullet. <laughs> um, right. But when it comes to like... When it comes to what happened to me, I occasionally get asked to go and speak at like army bases or to law enforcement or people who are suffering from PTSD or, or are suicidal and sort of help them flip the script. You know, people are always focusing on the negatives in their life. And I, and I, I just, all I do is share what I did to get through my bad days. Yeah. And, and, it, and it helps, it helps others. I've had people tell me that after hearing my story that uh, they, you know, they were able to, to swallow their own um, bad times a little easier. Uh, but, you know, I don't run around going, hey, this is what happened to me. I just, 
you know, I got life. Life shouldn't be about looking back at bad things. It should be about living in the moment, you know, and just and, and turning it. Every day is a new day to to change, you know, to to make it whatever you want. And I I hundred percent believe that we are all the architects of our own happiness. And I focus on just trying to leave this place a little bit better than I found it. I love it. And I'm totally completely blown away by your story, by your attitude, um, by your comeback, by the fact that you became like the mayor of the jail that you were in. I mean, that's just, it's, it's, it's out of control. Um, so I'm going to ask you this one last question, Eric. So this podcast is all about being epic, which I understand is a word that you don't use. <laughs> it's, and that's totally cool. But I wanted to ask you if you could have any superpower that you don't already have, you're, I mean, in my opinion, the way I see it, you're a really powerful guy. What is a power you don't have that you would want to have? Oh, teleportation. Uh, like you said, I, I travel as much as possible, even to this day. The world is my playground, and I would want to be able to have coffee in, uh, in Barcelona or Lisbon and then go, and go for a nice little hike down in uh, Peru and Machu Picchu. And uh, I know I want to explore a glacier down in antarctica i'd love to take the road to mordor tour in new zealand uh you know i would have loved to have gone and helped with the australian fires and saved some koalas or other animals uh, i would love to have had teleportation but you know that's what's kayak and uh skip lag are for you can get on a plane t tonight and go somewhere and i say travel travel often the rest of the world is actually pretty amazing you know a smile is universal you know, everyone's got a story. If you give people the benefit, I mean, if you go looking for trouble, you're going to find trouble. But basically, there's there's beauty everywhere. You know, it's it's not hard to find. I agree with you. From the bottom of my heart, I completely agree, a hundred percent. So, Eric, thank you again for being my guest today. I am uh, I'm honored that you've joined me. Thanks. No, it's my pleasure. Thank you. And again, my name of my documentary is called Three Years in Pakistan: The Eric Day Story. You can find me on Instagram at Eric Day. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a word of mouth documentary. So if you like it, please share. Fantastic. Yeah. That was the question I was going to ask you next is where can we find you online? So now we know where to find you online. Three years in Pakistan, the Eric Day story. And again, Instagram at Eric Day, And I'm going to spell that for all of you listeners, E-R-I-K-A-U-D-E. -E. And the E has an accent, but I imagine that on Instagram, you don't have to put that in, huh? No. Yeah. Otherwise it'd just be odd. Yeah. It's French. <laughs> there you go. Thanks again, Eric. And again, this is Nikki Bruno with Eric Auday on the Epic Comeback podcast. For more information about how to stage an epic comeback in your life after going through a life-shattering experience, please go to theepiccomeback.com. <laughs>